This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. Hello. This week, the Center for an Informed Public is a brand new multidisciplinary endeavor at the University of Washington aimed at strengthening our democracy by addressing the many threats posed by the propagation of disinformation. We are joined for a wide-ranging discussion by the Center's inaugural director, Jevin West, who may be best known for his course entitled Calling Bullshit a class that teaches students how to, among other things, discern and dispatch with this information. West says that in many instances, there is a moral imperative for calling out BS when you see it. Especially when it deals with human health, it deals with climate health, it deals with big issues. We want for those things in particular to be able to call BS if really BS needs to be called. Then, in the first of our reports from Indivisible's very first national campaigns network in D.C., we talk with a leader from Indivisible Kentucky about the view from the ground of the race to unseat Mitch McConnell and about how Indivisibles here in Washington can get involved with the fight. That's all coming up, so stay with us. This fall, the University of Washington will be launching the Center for an Informed Public, a multi-department endeavor aimed at strengthening democratic discourse, resisting disinformation, and promoting an informed society. And joining me to talk about it is the inaugural director for the center, Jevin West, who is an assistant professor in data science at UW. And if his name sounds familiar to you, it is because he is also the co-creator of the popular course Calling Bullshit Data Reasoning in a Digital World. Jevin West, it is so cool to talk to you, man. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Stefan. And I would, uh, I'm, I'm quite amazed that you have to actually get to use the, the full term for the course. Most of the time I have to use BS. Well, I'm going to ask that we do that uh, <laughs> just so that uh, people don't get tired of all the bleeping. So uh, I do want to talk about the center in depth, but let's start with a course on BS. So start us with the basics. How do we define BS? Well, I mean, in, in the way that we define it, we build off of, you know, Harry Frankfurt's definition and others that have actually taken this as a serious academic endeavor to try to define it. You know, as a, as a, as a way to think about it, most people, at least Harry Frankfurt thinks about liars, for example, they actually know the truth, whereas BSers, they don't really care whether you know, you move towards the truth or don't move towards the truth. A liar just wants to move you away from the truth, whereas a BSer um, sort of wants to uh, just basically grab your attention and grab your time. And it includes lots of things. It includes language and we think even statistical figures and data language occurs in this and other forms of presentation, mainly there to persuade and impress you and, and sort of overwhelm you with their expertise um, and, and really with a blatant disregard for truth and logical coherence, whereas the liar sort of knows where the truth is and sort of just moving you away from the truth. Well, so, yeah, and I should mention Harry Frankfurt, the book was written in 1986. So this is something that has been uh, on the minds of a lot of academics for quite some time. And, you know, in the outline for your course, you talk about a moral imperative to call out BS. Why is it important that we call out BS? Well, I think it's important that we call it out because it makes us all better thinkers. I mean, in a democracy, we depend on collective decision making. And I want everyone, even those that I disagree with about the current tax bill or about some new policy that's um, sort of been pushed through in Congress, I want everyone to have you know, the right information. I want people to, um, to be able to at least agree on what a fact is and and you know, I agree on basic principles of epistemology. I, I, so I, I think it's important for us to call it because it makes us collectively smarter as well. So you know, and I, I think we don't call it all the time. We talk about in our, our course about the importance of civics and, and, and a mature dialogue. We don't want everyone, you know, we don't want the person at dinner 
that's 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 contradicting every single thing that's been said. Those kind of people are annoying. Um, mm. But we want we want to to be able to you know on things that really matter. I think there really is a moral imperative, especially when it deals with human health. It deals deals with climate health. It deals with you know deals with big issues. We want to, for those things in particular to be able to call BS if if really BS needs to be called. And those are some of the things that I know that the center is looking at doing, and I do want to unpack that in just a second. Um, But just to give people an idea, uh, and I know this is a full college course, but what are just a couple of significant ways that you teach students to detect BS? Well, I mean, we start with some of the simple things. I mean, you the, the same questions that we've been taught since we probably were little kids. I mean, if someone tells you something, you should be asking, you know, who's telling me this? How do they know it? What do they have to gain from it? You know, if something sounds too good to be true or too bad to be true, many times it is, and sort of have that kind of radar in. But for the class, we have a special emphasis on data and data communication, partly because that's my expertise. Carl and Bergstrom and I, Carl Bergstrom is the uh, my co-creator of the course, and um, one of the things that we've wanted to do was um, try to uh, sort of convey or translate some of the tools we've developed in dealing with the kind of BS that comes wrapped in numbers and statistics and, and you know, tr- uh, sort of trendy language in, in technology, just because it's infusing more and more of our worlds. You can't go to a meeting without seeing someone throw up a graphic, or if you look on Twitter or Facebook, everyone's got a data table to share, or, or, no, or at least a data graphic. But the idea is to try to teach people how to sort of see through that BS as much. But of course, we talk about other things. We talk about um, fake news, and we talk about um, the other ways in which that we can all be BS. And, and by the way, I should say that I'm always trying to get better at this too. That's partly why you teach classes at universities, so you can get better. Everyone thinks because Carl and I teach this course that we are the, the best uh, BSers out there. But I would say, you know, there are there's likely much better out there and we're just trying to get better at this too. And six, we also talk about the calling of BS, which is important. It's not just a class on spotting BS. We didn't call the course on spotting BS. We called it on calling BS. So we spend a lot of time on refutation strategies. Uh, we talk about ways in which you can be, um, you know, a credible BSer, uh, or or you're calling BS on someone that you, there, there's there's some strategies by which you could go about doing that. Right. So yeah, it goes both ways. You can actually t- uh, take your course to learn how to BS better or to learn how to call it out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's shift over and talk then about the Center for an Informed Public, which I should mention just received a five million dollar grant from uh, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. So. Um, according to a statement by University of Washington President Anamari Kause, the center will bring together a number of disciplines to, quote, defend our democracy against disinformation. So we know what the stakes are here. Um, what will this center be doing specifically? Is it going to be a think tank? Is it going to propose policy? What's it going to do? Well, honestly, we're still figuring it out. Um, we, you know, we have a plan and we wrote our proposal to the Knight Foundation and we were very fortunate to be one of five centers around the country that will be funded um, to do this kind of work. And the goal is to, to really establish a field of research. So I think at the core of the center will be research in understanding how misinformation and disinformation spreads online, um, what are the ways in which we can resist strategic misinformation. Um, so there'll be a real strong research component led by Kate Starbird, who many of maybe your listeners have, have heard of, and, and Emma Spiro. Um, but there'll also be a really strong policy arm and education arm. So Carl Bergstrom and I will be leading some of the education efforts. But when I say leading, that means, in, you know, hopefully incorporating all the other great ideas that are going on in the Puget Sound area um, and, you know, across the country in this space. Um, and there's 
also be a real strong arm in engaging with the public. So that's kind of what's different in, I think, our center than maybe a, a typical, uh, well, I wouldn't say a typical think tank because that would be hard to define all by itself. But I would say that at its core is research, but it's in translating that, that, that research into the public, into places like libraries, and which is a real strong, we have a, a, a strong emphasis in libraries in the information school. And so, and, and engaging in the public in ways that is different than a typical research project because the, the, the problem's just too big and it, it touches yeah. every aspect of society. So that's, that's sort of the, the vision is to bring these elements together, policy, you know, bring technology leaders, bring the research, education, et cetera, all together, and hopefully good things will happen. Yeah, well, I mean, you're talking about uh, integration here, and it does touch every part of our lives right now. You mentioned strategic, uh, strategic misinformation, which I think we can roughly translate as so-called fake news, which is a huge problem. Um, political sides in America often don't agree on a shared set of facts. Where do we start with a problem like that? Well, it's a really, really hard problem, and it, and it keeps me up at night. If I wasn't working on this project as a research and education project, I would do it on my side. I just think it's such an important problem to be thinking about. And you're right. If we can't even agree on the same facts, that to me is is a sign of our democracy sort of, you know, if it went to the doctor, democracy, <laughs> some of the, the vital signs are, are, are not so good right now. So we need to do something about it. And I think one of the things that we want to do is at least have a center where we can start those conversations. Um, one of the things we want to emphasize, of course, is that this is a nonpartisan kind of center. This isn't, you know, one side or the other. We're going to try to do our best. I mean, there's, you know, there's some things that we have to stand firmly on certain certain issues. But I mean, this is this is a place where we hope to start those conversations. But I mean, this idea that, you know, we can't even agree on facts. It, it's probably you're hitting you, you hit you pierced one of the hardest issues of all. of it. If we can't even agree on facts. Um, then that is a problem. Let me just give you one like example of the kind of thing that we would plan to do. So the philosophy department uh, about a year ago ran an event called Epistemology in the Real World. So epistemology, I know, is a kind of a uh, probably a more fancy it's a 50 term word. than we should. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, how do we know what we know? And they, we spend a day um, uh, at the university on talking about how do we know what we know. And so having more of those things and, and talking to students and the public and, and engaging in those ways, hopefully we can get back to at least agreeing on some basic empirical methods for how we know things. Right. And so this is where sort of the cross-disciplinary aspect comes in with the center. And I know you're not a sociologist, but I will ask you, you know, the more that we learn about things like political tribalism and confirmation bias, it seems that people, we as humans, are almost hardwired to resist being well-informed. Is that a fair assessment? No, I think, I mean, you're bringing up some really important conversations that you know, we're hoping to have in the center about things like confirmation bias. And we're trying to, you know, we want to bring in psychologists that have thought about this for their career. But we're, it's like, a, it's like a, I work on, you know, computers and software systems, et cetera. And, and, and I see the human brain, one of the bugs that we have is this, this, this tendency for you know, uh, you know, conf you know, looking for things that confirm our own narratives and our own biases, which is confirmation bias, right? Which is confirmation bias, exactly. And so, you know, I think one of the things that um, that we can do is first just let people know about that. And and as an example, last this March, uh, March of this year, we held an event called Miss Info Day at the University of Washington, and the idea was to bring in high school students from across Washington, not just within the Seattle area, but from rural areas and urban areas and bring them together. And we brought a couple hundred students and we spent a day talking about misinformation. And one of the four main topics we talked about was confirmation bias. 
And we thought there was no way we could teach confirmation bias to high school students, but we were going to try. And, you know, I think, you know, for some, you know, we failed in some place and, and succeeded in others. But the, the, uh, the post survey revealed that, you know, I think students got an idea what that is. So let's first let people know that we all have these biases. And, and then from there, at least we can try to recognize it when it, uh, when it, when it kind of crops up. And it gets to sort of a more core problem in my mind, which is that even if you get people to recognize that they have confirmation bias, um, you can do all you want to try to authenticate news stories. Uh, Snopes, of course, has done this for years, and I know that Facebook is currently trying. But there's always going to be a certain portion of the population that simply won't believe no matter what. And the mission of the center is an informed public what do you do with that portion of the population? Well, I, I don't have a great solution to that portion of the population. And, and sometimes we've, we've had this discussion in our class, in the Calling BS class, where we talk to students about the kind of people, whether it's over Thanksgiving dinner or whether it's someone you meet in, on the airplane or in, in, in the bus. There are some people that you can have an, a, a dialogue with that you disagree with. But at the end, you feel like you both sort of you know, maybe shifted a little here or there. But there are some people you just will never convince. And in fact, there's this idea that, you know, at least in our current social media environments, because online behavior, people behave basically different online than they do offline. Right. There's, uh, there's this idea from Judith Donna from the MIT Media Lab where she talks about how not only do people sort of spread uh, information, misinformation, many times they'll do it even purposely to convey their sort of commitment to the tribe. So they may even know that something is completely false, but by sending something so ridiculously false, it communicates that I'm a part of that tribe. And so you, you say if, the, if we have a moral imperative then to call out BS, I'm wondering if that extends to this sort of scenario that you're talking about where uh, somebody is willfully spreading around misinformation or won't even acknowledge factual information. And actually, it makes me want to ask you, do you ever get into these sorts of online arguments? Oh, I, mean, I certainly have. I've been in online and offline because I have a chance, you know, I really am trying to engage with the public and, um, you know, going and talking in, uh, you know, at city halls and, you know, both in rural areas and urban areas. And, and many times I'll have, you know, I'll talk with someone after that that is pretty resistant and we're very much on different areas. But what I'm hoping is just that engagement. Hopefully we'll, you know, if someone's willing to, to get in the car and come to an event or willing to talk, you know, at least they're there's kind of a selection bias issue there that they're, they're at mm. least people hopefully will either they're, they're a person willing to engage or maybe they're even more resistant. Who knows? Maybe as I'm thinking out loud. Well, but, do you uh, hope that there's any sort of spider effect that uh, the sorts of uh, lessons imbibed uh, by people start to ripple out and maybe convince more people? Is that the is that the idea? That's the hope. And I think that's why we want to engage educators. I mean, I think, you know, one of the best things we can do is 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 start talking about this and including this in the curriculum in high schools and maybe middle schools. So as you know, as students go, you know, as they go through ed being educated in math and calculus, they also have discussions about civics again and media literacy and about, you know, epistemology and about, you know, what a fact is and what science is. And I think, you know, that's starting to, I mean, it's happening. Actually, the state of Washington um, was the, one of the first, actually, it was the first state to now require uh, media literacy in the curriculum. And that's oh, sort of going that. through terrific. the process. Yes, it's, it's wonderful. And actually, other states, I think it's eight or nine other states, you have to, we have to look this up and verify this, you know, talking about verification um, <laughs> to, to make sure that's true. But that, that's, I think you're starting to see things. So there is this scare of the misinformation epidemic, the fake news epidemic, and 
the one thing I'm, I'm a, I'm sort of an optimist. I, I think there are, I think we're going to work through it. Um, I mean, there's been other times in, in, in human history where we've had new uh, communication technology that came along, even the printing press. There was lots of worries back then about anyone being able to say anything and read anything. Um, but we got through it. And I think, I think we can get through this, but, uh, and, and there are good things happening, like, you know, some of these kinds of policies and hopefully centers and other things and, and efforts uh, across private and public sector. But I think we need to take it serious, though, and, and, and have these conversations like you're the kind of things you're engaging me with right now. Well, and certainly your coursework is getting out there. I know it's been picked up by over 70 universities and it's available online. And I should mention for listeners that I will have a link to the coursework online for anybody who wants to check out Calling BS. Um, I want to move on to a listener question. Uh, and this has specifically to do with the nonpartisan nature of the center. So Riley Dolan would like to know how you convince people, particularly conservatives, that nonpartisan institutions such as the Center for an Informed Public are actually legitimate and not part of the, quote, liberal fake news globalist agenda. Have you thought about that? Oh, my goodness. It's a, it's a wonderful question. It's a great first question to throw at me from listeners because it's something that's on my mind every day as we're starting to do the setup of the center because we're in the process of setting it up. When the news just came out, when UW, the press offices said, you know, about a month ago that we're going to be having the center, I went, of course, and I should, I try to avoid this, but I go and look at all the comments and the, <laughs> the comments were exactly what you just asked me about. Wow. That, that people were saying, oh, well, this is just going to be, uh, you know, another liberal institution to, in, quote unquote, inform us. And they said it much, you know, some of them were nice like that. Some of them were not so nice in saying, so how do we convince both sides of the political spectrum that we truly are nonpartisan? Well, one of the things that we're trying to do is we're setting up an advisory board that have um, representatives that are respected. And, 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 you know, there is some there is some filtering. We can't just accept any crazy, crazy person on either side. We're, we're being very hopefully careful. That's, it's an impossible task when you have a limited number of seats for this advisory board. But hopefully we'll have an advisory board that represents people that are respected on both sides. Um, and that that's one step. You know, we'll try to have we'll make sure that we have activities that sort of represent both sides so that we're going to really try our best to, to communicate to both sides that um, that we're nonpartisan, but I'm open to ideas because, like I said, it's something I, I, I think about every day because if we're only th thought of as another, you know, li you know liberal uh, bastion of, of informing or however we could, you know, we could come up with different terms of, for saying that, I, I, that we won't be as success successful. So I, I, I encourage your users to reach out to me and others at the center to figure out how we can do that, because it's necessary that we do engage on both sides and not just one. Well, and so just continuing on with the question about bias, I know that in your coursework, you always encourage your students to dig to the source of what you read, and that's one good way of calling out BS. And I'll ask you, are there news sources that you trust, and, and why? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and, you know, there are news tr sources that I trust more than others, but I have found problems in, in, in even the ones I trust. Like, for example, I mean, I do read the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, and those are places I think that are, for the most part, reliable news sources. But like, why? I, in, in, if, if I may ask, why, why do you why do you consider those to be reliable? 
Well, I consider them reliable because I have tested them before on, on topics that I know. So like in their, like science, I, I spend more time reading science than I do, you know, most other subjects because that's my area um, of expertise. And so when I look at the news sources that um, that report on things I actually know, that's one way to, to identify whether it's reliable. The other thing I always tell students is that whatever news sources you decide to rely on, make sure that they recognize the difficulty at getting at truth. So journalism is not an easy thing. And, I, and I'm not a journalist, a journalist like you, you, you are, Stefan. You actually know this better than I do, so I shouldn't be speaking too much about it. But I do appreciate how difficult it is, as at least a scientist, to get to truth. And so, it's a moving target, for sure. Yeah. It is. And if, if, if the ways that you can, that, uh, that a news source can signal that they recognize and are humble about that, um, that kind of uh, endeavor, is that they'll have retractions, for example. Right. They'll admit when they're wrong. Um, and, and, and there's so many news sources out there that don't have any of that. They would never admit uh, that they, they were wrong. I mean, when was the last time that InfoWars admitted that they were wrong? Right. Um, and, and, you know, I think that's, you know, you need to, you need to be able to, to have a, you know, a place has to admit when they're wrong. And if that's one, I mean, it's one of many different things that we talk about, but the new sources that I trust, I mean, I, I tend to trust, I mean, when I dig all the way to the source, even beyond the news reported story, if it's around science, for example, I go straight to the source. I go straight to the, the research article that was published in nature or science, or I, you know, I talk to the actual researchers themselves, but we don't always have all that time. So at some point we do have to have some trust in the system, but also recognize that it's hard to do. I actually do rely on fact checkers. I use the fact checking organizations quite often on things that I'm not quite sure. Of. And I also corroborate. I mean, one of the things we always say is corroborate and triangulate as much as you can, even though this, you know, disinformation, you know, campaigners know that you're trying to corroborate. So they put the same thing in multiple places. But I think, you know, if you, if you see it only in one, you know, one news agency, you know, and it's not being reported in other places, that's a way to see whether it's true. But I, as long as you can, you know, you're sort of at least trying to read a, you know, a balanced diet, I guess you could say, I have some colleagues that have come up with some nice balances to at least see what's, you know, others are thinking on other sides of the political spectrum. Well, and speaking of other sides of the political spectrum, that brings up a question from listener Janet Carson. And she asks, is it it better to avoid something that you know to be full of propaganda, like Fox News, Breitbart, Infowars, or is it better to look at it once in a while to be informed about what the other side is thinking and hearing? Well, I have to say, your readers are very nuanced to think, or uh, really very, very. They uh, really great are. Questions. I'm consistently impressed <laughs> by them, honestly. <laughs> they should they should attend our class and sort of lead some of these discussions. <laughs> these are really, actually, fantastic questions. You know, I, I'm limited, like anyone else, in in the amount of information I can consume in one day. I mean, we're, we all consume way more than we you know can anyway, and we're always beyond that threshold. And so, I, I certainly wouldn't spend too much time reading places that you didn't trust. But every once in a while, just seeing what's you know how crazy some of the ideas might be in certain places is is not. I don't think as long as you don't, as long as you you don't feel like you're you're um, you're gonna you know you get get de depressed by what you're. I mean, no. I, I'll give you an example because one of my colleagues, Kate Starbird, she studies online conspiracy communities, and I don't know how she does and it. I exactly, and and she even says even to her students, they have rules in her lab where they say, you know, you can only be living in these communities 
communities and studying these communities for only so long, or you start to get disoriented about the world. Yeah. It really, it's crazy. And actually, when they look at some of the individuals in these conspiracy communities online, they find that they're kind of like gateway drugs. You go to one conspiracy and you're almost more primed to go into another. And they find people, you know, migrating from one to another. And so, you know, I think most people are, you know, of your listeners and, and, and most people in the world, I think, you know, won't be convinced by some of the really crazy stuff out there. But, you know, still beware. Because um, they use some, a lot of the, these conspiracy groups will use the same tactics that we do to at a university, saying, you know, we want you to become better critical thinkers. We want you to be able to think independently. We want you to be able to question authority, et cetera. And they're using the same strategies. And so this is where, you know, the, you have to beware of those kinds of um those kinds of uh, efforts and strategies. And when things like that appear on something like YouTube, there is an algorithm that is designed to serve up similar programming, kind of leading you down uh, a thread or a a rabbit hole, if you like. So if you click on something that is BS, you're going to get more of it. Uh, How culpable do you see a a company like YouTube in the propagation of BS? Oh, we could talk the entire time on this particular topic. (laughs) Something that I, you know, I'm digging deeply and personally on the research side or in my own lab on. And I think they're very much culpable and they need to, this is where we need to bring them to the table. You know, if it's a regulatory table or at least a table to talk to them about what they're trying to do to overcome this. Because one thing that we do know, you mentioned YouTube, so we'll focus on YouTube. Partly also because they're one of the most visited sites in the world, and it's where you know when you look at the number of minds that they're influencing, it's you know at a scale that no other, basically no other company has. Even I would even say you know possibly more than you know it's hard to measure, but more than even some of the social media companies. But the, but the the thing that's been coming out more and more into research papers and 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 to news, um, investigative news uh, reports on this is that. Even if you go into incognito mode, so this is the mode within your web browser that it doesn't know who you are. You know, it still does, but you know, for the most part, it says, "Oh, I've erased your history." You go to YouTube, for example, on a simple search, and I did this. You know, I've done this in many different searches. Like if I search "International Space Station," of the let's say ten recommendations, many times, and I've I've got screenshots to show this, and then I talk about this in some of my talks. You know, thirty, sometimes forty percent of the recommendations are to conspiracy things about the the Earth being flat, or that do you really, you know, think the Earth is round? I mean, that's and the reason why this is happening. It's not. It shouldn't be a surprise to to most people that kind of understand these systems. They're constantly running A/B experiments all the time, and the algorithms are trying to see what keeps people, what sticks them to the platform. That's their only objective. And if their only objective is to stick people to the platform, well, these div- this divisive material, this material that's conspiracy-laden, yeah, catches people's attention. And that's what they end up reading. That's what's recommended. And that has to – this sort of objective of only sticking t- people to the platform, we need to be – society has – the public has a right to talk to these technology companies about whether – that is, you know, a good for society because it's having a huge effect. So yes, recommenders, bots, all the kind of automated work, uh, this is having a huge effect on us. Well, and so I, I know that you are not an attorney and this is kind of a First Amendment question, but then how much responsibility should these providers, YouTube, uh, Facebook, Twitter, how much responsibility should they have over the content that their sites serve up? Well, this is you. You're hitting on one of the one of the big topics we're going to actually hit in one of our first policy forums. I think I don't know for sure because Ryan Kahlo is going to run this. He runs the Tech Policy Lab, and he's going to run the policy, 
you know, activities in the center. And, and one of the questions he wants to have is, you know, one is to talk about the First Amendment in 2019, you know, just just to talk about it in terms of the, you know, this um, the platforms um, and also a really controversial um, but important law in Internet law is something called CDA 230. It's the Communication Decency Act, this two, Section 230 of this act. And what it, what it was transformative to these platforms, these large platforms like Facebook and, and Google. And what it did is it, it basically gave immunity to the platforms um, around any of the content that was posted. So if, if there was a sort of really offensive, violent um, video that was posted YouTube wouldn't be responsible. They, they couldn't be responsible. They're only the platform. So now that particular uh, piece of, uh, you know, of legislation is now being discussed, you know, given what we now know over the last 10 years, and especially given sort of these problems around um, this kind of divisive material and, and material that can actually be affecting people's health and everything else. So, so you're going to see some interesting discussions, and I encourage your readers to, to read more about this because we're, we're looking for uh, creative ideas on, on, on at least how we could engage these big tech companies and, and what their responsibility is. Well, duly noted, and don't be surprised if you hear from some of my listeners. Um, so something else that's mixed in with all this is digital manipulation and so-called deep fakes, uh, manipulated video. And I know that this is an area of research for you. And in fact, you host an online site that features pairs of photos where one is real and the other has been essentially amalgamated by a computer. And I have taken this test and I can't tell the difference. Um, so, yeah. so we know this is coming. And I'm wondering how worried should we be about things like this and about deepfakes? We should be very concerned. Some of the things I, I don't want to get people over worried. There's plenty of issues that I think are, are, are sort of, uh, you know, over dramatized, but I think deep fakes are something we should take seriously. And it's this idea where you can essentially take a, you know, a script and plop it in someone's mouth or in a video. And it's really hard to distinguish. And it uses this technology called, you know, it's, it's, you know, the general technology is called GANs, these generative adversarial networks. And they're a, a general approach to you know, doing things like uh, developing, you know, photo or human realistic photos that are created just from the algorithm. It's not, it's not an actual real person. And so this site or this pro project that you mentioned that we worked on, again, this is with Carl Bergstrom on the Calling BS project. We put out this project called whichfacesreal.com. And the idea was to put one real face against a, a fake face and the users have to decide which one is which. And I still miss them too. So don't feel bad. Okay. I, I miss them all the time too. It's really, really hard. And here's the thing. It's only going to get better. So if you go to the site, you'll find that that's, you know, that's not even the state. It's already, this, we released this, you know, maybe six months ago and it's all, the technology's already gotten better. And so the idea um, is that you could create out of just, you know, a little bit of simple software on your computer within actually seconds, if you want to, if you had the right software to create images of individuals, of humans that are not, that don't exist on the earth, but you could put in and you could tell stories about them. And there's something about the human face that seems like so human that it's, it's, it's something that AI, artificial intelligence and, and, and sort of, you know, silica based intelligence uh, couldn't, you know, recreate. That's something that's so distinctly and uniquely human. But now they've, it's sort of crossed the uncanny valley now. Yeah. It's there now. We can't really tell anymore. And so it is something to be concerned about because I, I think many people are predicting this, that in the next campaign in 2020, 
we will likely see, we've already seen some things with the Nancy Pelosi video and some other kinds of videos coming out, but there's going to be these kind of deep fake videos um, that are going to be hard to distinguish of someone saying something that they actually didn't. And here's the, th here's the scary thing. Not only can you do that, but then you can also use it as a defense. Let's say you actually did say something that was offensive, but you wanted to sort of, you know, you, you, it was something you didn't want out to go out in public and you say, oh, well, that's a deep fake. Yeah, so in exactly. both forms, it's, it's, it, to me, it's, it's something that is scary. It's dystopian, and it almost seems like we're heading toward a, toward a society where we simply can't trust images, and that brings up a whole other set of problems. Um, and the elephant in the room here, of course, is Trump. Um, Trump has been absolutely destructive to our discourse. There's just no two ways about it. And I'm wondering, do you see him as the cause of our current problem of disinformation or more of a symptom? You know, it's a good question. We talk about this, you know, in policy or in forums, you know, academically and non-academically, you know, for dinner, we talk about this. I mean, these are interesting conversations. I mean, if you if you had to pin me down on something, I see it possibly more as a symptom. Um, I don't think I don't want to give, you know, any one individual that much credit to have that to sort of have, you know, first of all, created the term fake news, which of course has been around for a long time. Um, and, and all these sort of issues that we're seeing, I think it's, it's a more of a symptom of our time. Um, I think, you know, social media has played a, a massive role, the automation of social media. So we talked about these recommender systems and bots. We, we talked, you know, one thing we haven't talked about are these, these purposeful disinformation campaigns coming from, you know, foreign adversaries and, and, from corporations, whether it was this, you know, the smoking um, issue, you know, several decades ago, there's all these things coming together uh, on a technology that travels at the speed of light that anyone can, pretty much anyone can have access to, that get, has a reach that we've never seen before. I think technology is really playing a role, and then the symptom is sort of, you know, some of the the, the differences in values and beliefs. Um, of different groups in society. And that we need to sort of address and think a lot about. There's economic disparities. There's all, I mean, it's, it's, it's a kind of a, kind of almost like a cop-out answer, but because it's just, it is so many different elements. But I would say of those two things you mentioned, I, I think it's more of a symptom. I'm curious what you think and your users too. So um, well, that's something we're discussing. I will put it to my listeners to, to hit me back at uh, indivisiblepodcast.org with their thoughts about this. And of course, you know, the center is going to be taking on all of this and we will be watching closely and with great optimism. And I will just ask you, because my show is listened to largely by progressive activists, what can we as citizen activists do? Is it simply enough to be calling out BS and about being more discerning about the things that we share? Is there more that we can be doing to combat disinformation? Well, I think one of the things that I'd love to see, you know, in society more generally, as has been as we've been thinking about putting up the center, is trying our best to sort of cross the political line and engage in conversations. There's been some great new programs, actually here in Seattle and across the country, where they bring people to dinner, for example. They don't know who they are. They also show up at one place. They pay the the, the nonprofit pays for the dinner, and they have a conversation about an issue that likely will have very different opinions but hopefully will be a chance to engage in ways that we used to when there was like a more of a physical public forum instead of this online forum that it's easier to, to mudsling and it's easier mm -hmm. for mob behavior to happen. And, and I think having, you know, having more of those, 
those conversations, but also just on a personal level and an individual level, just continually refining our ability to discern information that's that's useful and and information that's that's not useful because because we we're all sort of learning as we go in this these new environments and there's always new strategies too to trick us whether it's you know clickbait I think most people are sort of aware of clickbait you know the kind of things that just sort of force you to click on something or a headline just to come in right. but 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 there's a sort of form of like a, a more sophisticated level of, of clickbait out there too and and so I mean just get, getting better you know always you know, getting better critical thinkers. I know that's sort of a general statement, but trying to sort of, you know, engage, um, you know, across the political line, that's maybe where we'll make some progress. Cause right now we're so divided that it's, it's hard to make progress. Um, if we can't, you know, have those conversations. Yeah. So be open to more of those sorts of conversations, be aware of the evolving technology and Hey, uh, actual interpersonal interaction. What a radical idea. Um, and I will also <laughs> mention again, you say people need to get better at being able to discern BS and, uh, I will have all 10 lectures from the spring 2017 course on calling BS available at indivisible podcast. Org. Jevin West is the inaugural director for the Center for an Informed Public at the University of Washington. Jevin, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. And also, thank you and, and best of luck. We're, to uh, quote Leslie Nielsen in Airplane, we're all counting on you. Well, thanks, Stefan. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate those great questions from your users. Happy to chat any other time. And, and, and hopefully we can get through this dystopian stage that you had mentioned. I think, I, think we're, I think the light's on the end of the tunnel. We just have to keep working hard, all of us. Two weeks ago, over 300 indivisible leaders gathered in D.C. for the very first National Campaigns Network, an event for members to meet, network, attend trainings, and to strategize about Indivisible's path forward through 2020 and beyond. In addition to it being an extraordinary experience for the podcast, this was a real opportunity to hear from leaders from all over the country and get a sense of what progressive activism looks like on the ground where they are. So I know a lot of people here in Washington have expressed interest in potentially getting involved in the race to unseat Senate leader Mitch McConnell. So this week, I want to highlight my conversation with Chris Rousey. She is a leader from Indivisible Kentucky. When we spoke, I asked her first what she thought the key challenges are in beating McConnell. The big hurdle, I think, is going to be overcoming McConnell riding Trump's coattails because Trump is very popular in Kentucky and we're not going to turn Kentucky blue you know, in this election. But McConnell is not as popular. And we see that as a very winnable race with the right candidate and the right campaign and the right support. So I asked Rousey about that right candidate and about what Indivisible Kentucky would ideally like to see in someone running against McConnell. Um, ideally, someone who can beat him. Right. <laughs> um, but really what we're looking for is uh, someone who can bring integrity back to the state, who can, and I say with a, a little bit of a jest, who can beat him, but yes, it, it's going to take someone who is a well-rounded candidate and unfortunately someone who's not uber-liberal uh, because an uber-liberal candidate is not going to win in rural Kentucky, and that's, that's the area that we have to win. Lexington and Louisville, Kentucky are going to clearly go for the, the Democratic candidate, uh, but that's not the majority of the state. So we have to win over rural Kentucky, and the way we do that is with issues that resonate with rural Kentuckians. Uh, the coal issue, health care, the opioid crisis, even uh, to a certain extent gun control, uh, but common sense gun reforms because we do, you know, rural Kentuckians do hunt and, and they're not 
for the most part, wanting to give up their weapons. So uh, we've got to find candidates that can appeal to those rural voters on those issues um, without being, unfortunately, too liberal. Amy McGrath is the most visible candidate right now, but Rousey and many others in Kentucky are cautious about people from outside the state donating to McGrath just yet. At this point, we think there are still going to be several viable candidates who uh, who come out uh, either shortly before or right after the gubernatorial election in November. Um, at this point, we think that it's it's best to let the primary play out, and once the opponent is uh, settled, then I think everyone is going to muster resources and, and support and get behind who, whoever that candidate is to, uh, to get rid of Mitch. All that said, she's very enthusiastic about indivisibles from outside Kentucky getting involved in the race. We are uh, accepting offers of assistance um, uh, and are working on a statewide uh, strategy and uh, a coalescing of various resources from both within the state and outside um, so that when the time comes, we are able to, um, you know, to push that button and marshal those resources both in the state and outside the state. But at this point, anyone who's interested in assisting, if they reach out to our organization, we can loop them into the right channel uh, for the type of effort that, that they can offer. Uh, we'll certainly be looking for folks to come help us with the ground game, uh, sending postcards, making phone calls, phone banking, canvassing, that sort of stuff, um, as well as, you know, monetary donations. At the time we spoke, the hashtag Moscow Mitch was still very much trending, so I asked Rousey if she thought that that was having an impact on McConnell in Kentucky. In our work in, in Kentucky, we have found that Mitch tends to be impervious to most of the usual constituency efforts uh, and most of the attacks. He, he, he pretty much blows all of that off. But this one is sticking, and we think it's for a couple of reasons. One, um, because I think there's a grain of truth to it, and he knows that. And um, I think, you know, rural Kentuckians, uh, all Kentuckians really, but rural Kentuckians are nothing if not patriotic. And I think his concern is that if that sticks and we're able to show the ways that he has supported Russia over Kentuckians, I think uh, he's worried that that will erode his, his what level of support he has. And, and I think there's truth to that. So it, ha it is sticking right now. We're going to see what we can do to ensure that that continues and, um, and educate Kentuckians on, on where he really stands and who he stands with. So, if you are thinking you might want to get involved with the race to unseat Moscow Mitch, I will have contact information for Indivisible Kentucky for you, available at indivisiblepodcast.org. And that'll do it for this week's show. If you guys missed anything, if you'd like to catch up on past shows, if you would like links to any of the things that we talked about, you can find all of that and more at indivisiblepodcast.org. And you can subscribe to the show there, too. If you would like to get in touch, I would love it if you would. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Our associate producer is Charlotte Gittleman. Thank you again to my guest, Jevin West. Special thanks. Thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.